Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 21 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. My name is Rick. I'm an author, speaker, executive director of Vibrant Faith, a uh, training, coaching, research, and resourcing organization for church ministry leaders. And that has been my gig for um, about nine months now. So kind of a significant change in the whole Rick trajectory. But one thing has remained the same, and I'm so grateful and blessed to be able to continue to live out this trajectory in my life, and that is a, a focus, a, a underlying and overshadowing focus on Jesus at the center of everything. By the way, if you're new to the podcast, um, this, isn't, uh, this isn't a should podcast, meaning we don't talk about things we should be doing relative to our relationship with Jesus. We only really explore what naturally is magnetic to us about him. Uh, Shoulds never last very long. Uh, You probably learned that over the course of your life. Things that you should do are always fragile. But things that have captured your passion and your heart, those are the things that you um, maintain discipline about because you're passionate because they've captured your heart. It doesn't even feel like discipline anymore when that's the case. And this is the kind of relationship Jesus is hoping for with us, the kind of relationship where we encounter him as he really is. And we're so so, uh, drawn to the beauty that we find in him that the fruit of it looks like discipline. (laughs) It just looks like consistency in your life because we have found our deep love. And uh, Jesus has, has answered our deepest questions, not in the way that we thought he would. <laughs> so that's what this podcast is all about. All about. I'm an author. I've written many, many books. Uh, in the last decade, I've written The Jesus-Centered Life and Spiritual Grit. Um, I was the general editor for The Jesus-Centered Bible. Um, I wrote uh, The God Who Fights For You. Uh, Sifted, which was the earlier version of The God Who Fights For You, Um, Shrewd. Um, And in the last mm, year, uh, the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional was released in in last October. And in September, I have my latest book coming out. And this is an unusual departure for me. It's called The Suicide Solution. I've co-written it with a psychologist named Dr. Daniel Amina. And It has an unusual uh, pedigree. It's a book about suicide and depression through seen through the filter and the lens of uh, the uh, best practices in emerging science and research and how that overlays with how Jesus modeled holy living. And that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, how Jesus modeled holy living and how he invited his followers to do the same. How do these two things overlap to uh, 
put up a bulwark against this downward slide of depression and anxiety in our lives? What can we do to prevent that downward slide that, that is informed by the way Jesus lived his life and the way he invited us to live our lives? And as we see this show up in the latest research and um, practice around psychological health, that's what the Suicide Solution is about. It comes out in September during Suicide Awareness Week. So I'll tell you more about that as the time gets closer. But this was a, a massive project and one I did with a co-author, which I've uh, only done one other time in all of the books that I've written. And it was a fantastic experience. So again, I'll tell you more about that as it gets closer. But this is the fourth episode in a new series called The Harvest. And the, the premise here is that, of course, all fruit comes from a tree. And normally speaking, each tree produces one kind of fruit, a certain kind of fruit. And, and in the greater context of our relationship with Jesus, he's invited us to attach to him, like a branch attached to a tree or a branch attached to a vine. When we do, um, the, our dying, broken branch is filled up with his life, and we naturally produce fruit fruit after the tree's own kind. Well, in the case of Jesus, he's no ordinary fruit tree. He produces not just one variety of fruit, but many, many out of the same tree. So when we attach to him, we produce many, many varieties of fruit as well. So what we're doing is we're exploring each of these varieties of fruit and then tracking it back to its source in the tree, who is Jesus, um, and then discovering how those fruits show up in our own lives and how we can uh, maybe better fertilize, <laughs> uh, you know, that process in our lives. So, so we know that Jesus defines goodness. He, that, and I don't mean that lightly. He is the definition of what is good. Everything we see and hear Jesus doing and saying um, is, the, is the very definition of good. If you want to know what good is, just study what Jesus does. And that is good. And one of the things that he does and is all the time is bold. In fact, boldness is one of his primary characteristics. This is how people, many, many people primarily experienced him. And it's what set him apart from so many other so-called uh, wannabe messiahs and, and uh, you know, flash in the pan, pan rabbis. This boldness is one of the things that really set him apart. And people were astonished by how, how can he be so bold? Uh, how can he be so certain of, of who he is and what he's saying? So however Jesus lives out his boldness is good. So let's explore the many different ways that he lived that out, how he lived and spoke and related in a bold way, and discover how that might challenge or fuel the way we live. So let's think about this in a bizarre way here. When you think about... Um, the game dodgeball. All of us have had, uh, I think, an experience of playing dodgeball at one time in our life. It's one of those, you know, rites of passage games when you're a kid to play dodgeball. And uh, to play dodgeball, there's a center line and then teams on either side and usually play with five. Uh, in, when I was a kid, they were little red balls that hurt when they hit you, by the way. And you're not allowed really to to throw the, uh, to aim those, those balls at the other person on uh, the other, the other team, um, anywhere above their shoulders, you're not supposed to aim for their heads. 
You're supposed to aim below that. And if you hit the person with the ball, they're out. And if you get hit by a ball, you're out. But if you catch a ball that's thrown at you, the other person that threw it is out. And if you play prisoner dodgeball, which was my favorite when I was a kid, if you get hit by a ball, you go to a prison behind the other team's back line. And if you're actually able to catch a ball in the air when you're back there, you get to go back in the game. Uh, so that uh, that's <laughs> I love that fun version because even though you were out, you had the possibility of getting back in. Um, but dodgeball has uh, a lot of strategy to it. For a simple game like dodgeball, it had a lot of strategy to it. Um, and I, I I think I could put I could kind of place the two the two primary strategies in these large categories. One would be passivity, and one would be boldness. So if you're trying to win the game, be the last person standing, which of these strategies paid off the most? Passivity, where you just basically tried to be under the radar and avoid being noticed and avoid being targeted to the end of the game, or boldness, where you went on the offensive and didn't wait for others to go after you, you went after them uh, instead. Which of these two ways in your own experience playing dodgeball when you were a kid did you adopt and which do you think worked out the best? I have to say that there's a case to be made for both. Um, and it's an interesting uh, uh, sort of uh, case study in, in life, actually, is boldness or passivity rewarded more in life. In dodgeball, if you went on the offensive, you were at least sort of master of your trajectory. Uh, if you got out, at least you got out when you were trying to do something to win in a proactive way. Um, if you chose passivity, um, I, I know that there were times when I chose passivity as a strategy in dodgeball, just trying not to get noticed, trying not to be targeted. Even if I were to get close to winning or actually win the game, it felt a little hollow if my strategy was passivity. It felt almost like I won by default or I won by not sticking my neck out or I won simply because I tried to make myself invisible. I might have won the game, but I lost the war if I chose that kind of strategy. So it's not like passivity isn't rewarded in dodgeball, it can be. And passivity can be rewarded in real life as well. But uh, boldness, even when we lose, feels better intrinsically. That even when you're playing dodgeball and, and if you got out, you can, you can say to yourself, well, at least I had courage, at least I had the boldness to try to win. Um, at least I gave an effort that I can respect. Um, and in life, I think it's very similar. Uh, yes, boldness puts ourselves at risk of failure, um, but passivity um, has in, embedded in the very strategy uh, a kind of risk of, of failure. Because even if passivity works for you, it doesn't produce respect, self-respect in us. We don't like to win because we're passive uh, in the end. So boldness is something that is 
highly rewarded in life as long as it works out. <laughs> There's plenty of examples of bold people who risked, but it didn't work out for them. But what's the real risk underneath all this? Um, I think we are so wired to mirror the character and personality of God that passivity is never a satisfying alternative for us at a deep level. Um, we are suspect of it at a deep level because we were created in the image of God to reflect his strength and personality. So if you think about the boldest person you know, what makes that person bold? Uh, just mull that over for a second. Who, who do you know that you consider really bold? What, and what makes that person bold? I'd have to say for me, the bold people that I know have a certain security in their own identity that allows them to be bold. They're, um, they're not unafraid because they're arrogant. They're unafraid because they have a sense of who they are. And they have, a, a, in, in the context of those who are followers of Jesus, they have a sense of who he is. They have a, a real intrinsic sense of the heart of Jesus. And that has translated to a kind of security in them because uh, many, many things can be taken from us circumstantially, but what can't be taken from us is our own intimate relationship with Jesus and the transfer of his life into that dead branch, um, the transfer of his life into us. So his security becomes our security. His boldness becomes ours. His self-differentiation becomes ours over time. It's not like flipping a switch, obviously. That life seeps into our dead branch and brings about a slow-moving growth, a slow-moving life through, the, through every aspect of our branch, which eventually produces fruit. And one of the most enjoyable fruits is boldness. When we experience appropriate boldness in other people, we can't help but respect it. We admire and respect it, and we're moved by it, and we're changed by it um, when other people are bold. Um, I don't think boldness is always what you might call a universal good. There are evil people who are bold in their evilness. And uh, so boldness itself is sort of like a chainsaw. It can be used for good or evil. <laughs> So, but when we experience boldness and service of good, it is a deeply powerful experience for us. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I was just talking with my, with my, uh, a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, um, who I hadn't connected with for a while. And I remembered back to a, a time when he asked to meet with me over coffee, um, his name is Andy, and at the time we were working together at group, and Andy wanted to meet with me because he, he had finally read The Jesus-Centered Life after I had uh, published it. He had been saying he was going to read it, but he hadn't yet, and he finally read it. And all of this stuff that I've been talking about, about a life centered around Jesus, just clicked when he read that book. And what he wanted to tell me at that lunch, that coffee meeting was that he wanted our whole resourcing focus and our training focus to shift over toward focusing on Jesus at the center of all things. 
he wanted to make that the centerpiece and, and the, and the uh, foundation of our passion for everything we did. That was such a bold move, but the real boldness came in when, when we actually did that. <laughs> it wasn't just talk that out of that conversation came the Jesus-centered Bible. That was one of the first fruits of it. Um, so boldness led to all of this fruit, but it was a boldness that surprised me because of its certainty. Um, and obviously it changed the trajectory of my life. In this case, it was a boldness toward a practical thing. What is it we're going to produce as an organization? But also more deeply, it was a boldness targeted at my own soul. It was a, it was a way of saying, I see you and what you're about. And I so believe in it that I want to adopt that same mentality for everything we do. It, was, it had a deeply impact, in, impactful um, influence on my life. So I told my friend Andy this week, I was look, looking back to that, and I just said, you know, that still, that bold thing you did with me is still reaping fruit in my life over and over again. Um, this podcast, you could say, is a result of that one bold act that, that Andy extended to me. So it's not a universal good, but when we experience boldness in the service of good, it's life-changing. So um, is boldness or passivity rewarded more? Hmm, you could make a case that passivity is rewarded sometimes, but not at the level that, we that we're, we're most craving. Uh, boldness is really the only thing that hearkens to the heart of Jesus even if it means that we put ourselves in a vulnerable place and we're risking, we're, we're risking something that doesn't work out. So uh, given all that, I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore a couple of encounters that Jesus had and ask the same two questions of each encounter. What is the purpose of Jesus's boldness in this encounter? What's the purpose of the boldness in this encounter? And the second question is, what is the good outcome of that boldness? So those two questions. So I want you to think about those two questions as I, as we go through these two examples. Again, what's what's the purpose of Jesus' boldness, and what's the good outcome of that boldness? So let's take a look at a couple of stories. Um, one from the the Gospel of John, and one from the Gospel of Luke. Let's tackle John first. This passage is from John chapter ten, verses twenty-two through forty-two. John ten twenty-two through forty-two. This subtitle of this section in John 10 is Jesus claims to be the son of God. All right, here we go. Starting with verse 22. If, you, if you're not driving right now and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to John 10, it'd be great if you'd follow along here. You can read while I, while I read uh, to let it sink in even deeper. So starting with verse 22. It was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my father's name. But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me. 
and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, At my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, We're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus replied, It is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods. And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, why do you call it a blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set set me apart and sent me to the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, Believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Well, once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while, and many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. And many were that many who were there believed in Jesus. Oh my goodness. So here's a loaded encounter, right? In so many ways, but especially loaded relative to our two questions. What's the purpose of Jesus's boldness in this encounter? That's the first question. What's the purpose of it? So here, Jesus, uh, he, he didn't come to um, Jerusalem into the temple in this section of Solomon's colonnade to proclaim that he was the Messiah. The people begged him to tell, to tell him, them whether or not he was. Well, Jesus, and here Jesus's first response is, well, I've already done that and you don't believe me. So his first boldness is to point out the falseness of their request. They're saying, you haven't given us, uh, in, uh, in plain speak, uh, a real answer about this. And the truth is, they didn't like his answer. And so they're asking him to restate it again for them. They didn't really like his answer. It's not that they didn't hear it. It's not that they're still in suspense. He's made it clear. They just can't believe it. That's the bottom line. And so his first bold thing is to expose the true intent of their question, which is not to truly find, to discover whether he's the Messiah or not. It's really to either trap him or to uh, amend what he is saying about who he is. And then the second bold thing he does here is he, he says in verse 25, the proof is the work I do in my father's name. The proof is the work I do. So he's saying, I'm not going to use more words to try to convince you that I'm the Messiah. The real proof is in what I do. Examine what I do and then come to your own conclusions. This is essentially the same thing that John the Baptist did when he was trying to discern whether Jesus is really the Messiah, the looked for Messiah. He considered all of the things that Jesus has done. In fact, Jesus sent a messenger to John saying, essentially, here's the things I've been doing. So what do you think? Who am I? <laughs> and John got the message. Yep. 
this is the Messiah who does these things. So Jesus is saying uh, that boldness here is he's exposing the way human beings cling to words with the false belief that if just more words will convince me. Nope, more words won't convince you, especially if you're not paying attention to what I'm doing. If you were paying attention to what I'm doing, you would already know who I am. That's what he's saying. But you're not paying attention to what I'm doing. You're only interested in me saying the right words, and I'm not going to repeat them again. And then he says this bold thing. You don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So here he's saying, um, you, you really aren't believing in me because you haven't given yourself over to being my sheep. You haven't uh, tasted and seen what is in my heart and then committed yourself to following me. Uh, you haven't put yourself under the obedience, so to speak, of, of who I am, because that's what a shepherd is. The sheep obey their shepherd because they have placed themselves in obedience under him. And so basically Jesus is saying they in their arrogance, they have chosen not to give themselves to him. They have chosen to stay outside of a relationship with him and then demand that he say the right words to prove to them that he's the Messiah. Instead, Jesus says, well, if you were my sheep, you would hear my voice. He's really saying, before all your questions are answered, before all of your mysteries and doubts are, are addressed, will you put yourself underneath the care of my shepherding? Have you experienced my heart enough to commit yourself to me as your shepherd? When you do that, the things that I say and do will make sense. When you stay outside of that, because you just have to have more evidence, you just need one more time for him to repeat what he said before. Really, what, what's true about your, your place is that there is a, uh, a kind of reluctance or a, uh, a determined hanging on to my own control over my life, my own agency, my own ability to make my own choices and chart my own path and keep my independence I mean, in the end, so many things about our relationship with Jesus are about independence and dependence. And he's saying the path into understanding me is to place yourself in a dependent position toward me. If you maintain your independence, you won't understand what I'm saying. And you'll always be demanding more proof. In fact, no amount of proof will ever be enough for you until you place yourself in a dependent relationship on him. And he's saying, once you do that, um, you're never going to perish. No one can snatch you away from me. Um, because in that moment that you place yourself uh, in dependence under him, that kind of relationship is different than a shooting relationship. I'm following Jesus because I know I'm supposed to. I'm, I'm a Christian person. I'm supposed to follow Jesus. That's not what this is at all. This is someone volitionally saying, I'm placing myself under your obedience, under the obedience to you. Now I'm, I'm giving you a place in my life that I am volitionally offering you my own agency. I will do and say what you ask me to. I now have a master 
where I, where I was my own master before, now I've, I've made you my master, Jesus. And Jesus says in that kind of relationship, no one will snatch us away. And then he, then he says his last bold thing here, the father and I are one. So this was very intentional here at the end of this string. He is now boldly proclaiming that he is not just a prophet or a good teacher or a, a, a kind and tender-hearted miracle worker. He is God himself. Um, the Father and I are one. He is, he is unabashedly identifying himself as God the Son. And of course, these people who have determined to stand outside of relationship with him pick up stones to kill him. And his question to them is, well, I've done all these great things. Which one are you stoning me for? It's, it's, the, it's a kind of a playful thing in the middle of a tense circumstance because they're, they're, de they're determined to execute him. And he makes a joke in the middle of that because he's secure. Um, so, the, and their response is that, you know, they don't see the joke in it. Um, you know, we're stoning you not for, some any, for any good work, but for blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. So then Jesus shrewdly gives them an argument that is really designed to just upend the moment. It's not his moment. The cross isn't to be yet. So he gives them an argument they've never thought of before that basically um, uh, pulls the fuel rod out of this situation, gives them something confusing and hard to, hard to grapple with so that they uh, have some doubt about whether they actually should follow through and execute him. So he gives them this little shrewd argument that makes them pause. Um, and then he says, uh, again, he loops back to this theme. If I do things, if I do the Father's work, then just believe in that work. Believe in the fruit of what I'm doing. Uh, let that lead you back to belief in me. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and, and pay close attention to what I'm doing, then you'll understand that the father's in me and I'm in the father. So again, they tried to arrest him this time. This time they weren't going to uh, execute him. Now they're going to try to arrest him, but he gets away. Um, and then uh, out of this whole experience of repeated boldness, it captures the heart hearts of many of the people who are standing there. What, what they saw and experienced was something magnetic in him. Wow, did you see how he carried himself? And that expression of his identity was conveyed through his boldness. So they said, John didn't perform miraculous signs, but everything he said about this man has come true. So they're basically affirming that all of the things John said the Messiah would be were there. So the question is, well, what was the purpose of Jesus' boldness in this encounter? The purpose is to uh, fully express exactly who he is and to do it in a way that uh, reasserted um, his unique relationship with God the Father, that the two of them are one. And the good outcome of that boldness um, is the, the fruit of pretty much every encounter Jesus ever had with someone. The good, the good fruit from this encounter is that some people were determined in their hatred for him 
and they, they sunk even deeper into that. And some people were captured forever by his heart. That boldness caused them to leave behind the life they were living and come under the obedience to become a sheep. That boldness called them to become sheep who now answered to one shepherd who now understood and heard and knew the voice of the voice of God through the voice of Jesus. The last verse here said many who were there believed in Jesus. And it was through his boldness that they came to belief because what Jesus does here is he presents um, the either or to these, either you are a sheep or you're not a sheep. And if you're not a sheep, it's because you've chosen to stay outside you, you've chosen to maintain your independence instead of give yourself to dependence. Belief then means I have put myself in dependence in my relationship with Jesus. That is the essence of what belief is. All right, let's look at one more story and ask the same two questions. This is from Luke chapter seven. So if you want to flip over to that, if you're not driving, you want to flip over to Luke seven. This is verses 36 through 49. And we'll ask the same two questions as we think about this story. What's the purpose of his boldness and what's the good outcome of it? So starting in verse 36, chapter seven of Luke, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to splash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? So here we go with the two questions again. What's the purpose of his boldness in this story? And then the second question, what's the good outcome of it? So the purpose of his boldness is really to expose the self-righteousness of one Pharisee and by extension, all Pharisees. So these Pharisees were in a position where they were the standard for righteous, righteousness and righteous living. So they had in, inexorably and, and in a default way 
place themselves higher than everyone around them. They had an internal narrative that said, um, yeah, I'm getting this right, that I'm, I'm uh, someone who's an example that others should look to. I'm doing all the right things. And in that mindset, let's go back to that same theme of independence and dependence. In that mindset, there is a toxic independence. When you can look to your own righteousness and feel satisfied, you're in danger because the independence then becomes your operating system. And once independence becomes your operating system, you're like a branch that is not attached to the tree. That you don't die right away, but you're going to die. All of the life that's in you is going to spill out because you have no new source of life except in yourself. Think about that for a second. Independence means there's no source of life outside of yourself. And once you empty that, it's gone. Dependence means your source of life comes from an unending spring of life in Jesus. You have a refreshed and resurgent source of life always coursing through you when you are dependent and attached to him. So this independence expressed by Simon the Pharisee here is actually quite poisonous and dangerous for him. And so Jesus understands this sort of uh, independent, self-righteous way of seeing the world and sees exactly that Simon has, has really denigrated this woman and is completely blind to what she is doing with him. So he, in his boldness, he compares what Simon has done to care for him to what this woman who he doesn't have any regard for has done. He points to what she's done, not to her reputation or background or status. She points to what she's doing, which is essentially worshiping him. She is treating Jesus with the kind of passion and respect he, that, that, those who have seen his beauty respond with. And Simon has stood outside of all that. He hasn't done any of these things to recognize how beautiful and singular and worthy of worship Jesus is. In fact, he's treated him with a kind of um, disdain, even though it's subtle. He has not honored Jesus by doing these things. And then, and he's oblivious to it because he's oblivious to his own heart. He doesn't realize in the moment that his heart has been unmoved by the person of Jesus. And here we have an example of a woman whose whole life has been upended by the person of Jesus. And out of that, what she has done is, is express her gratitude in every possible way. And, and she's done it in a vulnerable and and costly way. Um, and this is where Jesus points out the difference. He's not interested in um, sort of political maneuvering and saying all the right words so that these self-righteous Pharisees uh, feel good about him. He's really not interested in that. He's actually loving two people in this scene. One is the woman who he elevates her status and elevates her respect by saying what he says about her. But the second person he's trying to love is Simon, because Simon is caught in this toxic cycle of self-righteousness and independence, and it's going to kill him. It's going to cut him off from life. And in his boldness, 
Jesus exposes uh, the danger of continuing in that, in that trajectory. And then he leaves it up to Simon to decide. How will Simon respond to being challenged in this way? What will he do? How, how will he um, take what Jesus has said and let it impact his life? Well, that's the hope of Simon's life. Will he decide that the independence he's living in is, is what it is, which is fragile and toxic, and leave and lay it down to give himself to the beauty of the heart that he has seen in Jesus? So just to close off here, one of the movements among Christian men in the last 20 years um, is a, uh, a challenge to reject passivity. Uh, if you go to any kind of uh, men's movement gathering in the last 20 years, you're likely to hear that phrase, reject passivity. That's because men, believe it or not, <laughs> default to passivity in their lives. Um, um, most men are not like the movie versions of men who are bold and aggressive. Most men, if they have the opportunity, default to passivity. They let uh, someone else do the hard thing, often their spouse. So the call out to men in the last 20 years is to reject that passivity. Why? Because it does not accurately reflect the heart of Jesus. So here's a question. What is an area of passivity that requires boldness instead in your life right now? Just want to invite you just for a moment to stop and listen to Jesus and ask that question. What's an area of passivity in me right now that requires boldness instead? Let's just stop for a second as you ask Jesus that question. And in the silence, uh, accept whatever comes. Here we go. All right, whatever surfaced for you during the silence, let me just say it's something for you to chew on with Jesus. Bring it up with him. Ask for more insight. Above all, ask him, what should you do as a result of that knowledge? What is something to do as a result of it? Not something to say, but something to do as a result of it. To move yourself out of passivity and into the boldness that reflects his heart. There you have it, gang. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode 21, for links to what we talked about today. Again, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>